Happy New Year. Happy birthday. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, Earth. <laughs> I did it on purpose. Are we keeping this or not? Let's keep it. Let's it's keep good. it. But it's I did good. it on purpose, I have to say. <laughs> it was just to see your reaction <laughs> about what happens if in a step of Happy New Year, we only say... Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Kirsten. <laughs> but no, it is actually a joke. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. Yuppie. Episode 19. 19. Will you say that? Ooh. Right now, we are recording this some few weeks before we are releasing this episode. So yes. actually, for us, for us, it's still 2018. Yes, but we can still celebrate 2019. Yeah. Like I'm ready for 2019 to get here. Definitely. I have many, many hopes for 2019 that is going to be much, much, much better than what 2018 has been for, at least for me, for several reasons. Anyway. That's fair. That's it's, fair. It's fair. All, 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 although, when you are listening, perhaps, to this uh, episode... Christine is going to be on holidays. I will. And I'm going to be working hard on the Anglo-Australian Telescope, Ooh. which I'm really looking forward to do that and going back to the AT after more than half a year there. Yes, and I'll be getting active, doing some fun stuff out in the wilderness. The wilderness and out in the bush. Well, it is Australia. Really? It yes. is Australia. What do you expect to do? Exactly. <laughs> there's, there's bush around every corner. <laughs> okay. I think it is a good moment to start. I'm Kirsten Banks. And I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And, and we, we are, are the Scientists. Okay, welcome to episode 19 of 2019. I mean, it's, it's episode one of 2019, but yes. like it's episode 19, the first episode of it's, it's okay, 19. Leave, leave it there, leave it there. We, we, we love numbers get <laughs> and getting this interesting relationship between different things. But, you know, just saying that it is episode 19. How are we still there? We've, we've almost been doing this for a year now. Mm -hmm. Almost. More when this episode is published, it Not will quite. be more than a year. It'll be the day before. Ah, oh, the day before. The day before. Okay, okay. So well. when you're listening to this on the release date, the day after will be our one year anniversary. That is why you were saying happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why. I get it now. <laughs> I thought you were saying happy birthday to the earth <laughs> for no. going around the sun. I was like, what? <laughs> Even if I thought doing that on purpose, and I will not ever get in that right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, let's go to really start. Yes, you let's... know, saying intelligible and interesting things, not stupid and silly things that we are talking and talking. So it's almost such a good podcast. We have a good mix of silly and interesting things. That's right. Yeah. Anyway. Let's go to space news, please. Yes. So space what do you news. have for the space news today, Christine? Well, since it's the new year, I thought we'd look back on the year specifically for SpaceX mm -hmm. and launching things into space. Because Elon Musk has beat a world record for rocket launches in 2018. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's making history-making SpaceX mission of the year. Essentially, he wanted to launch more orbital missions in 2018 than any nation on Earth, 
which he didn't happen to do. China successfully launched at least 35 rockets last year. But SpaceX broke the world record for most commercial rocket launches in 2018 with 2021. There is, when we're recording this, there is one meant to go up tomorrow, whether it's successful or not. I'm sure it'll be successful. So let's say 21. 21. 21. 21, yes. Let's say 21. Those that were included were the Falcon Heavy launch that everyone, Mm -hmm. I'm still raving about it. Oh my goodness, it's so cool. And if you want to know a bit more about that. We did have an episode on that. Yeah, it is in episode four. There we go. Episode four, we talked about that. That was good fun. Um, Another launch that they did that was successful was the launch of the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, which we might talk about a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But plenty of great stuff. And Elon Musk, of course, he's a guy, he's a man who dreams big. He plans to launch more rockets than ever before in 2019, perhaps 22 if all goes to plan. And the list includes an inaugural launch of the Crew Dragon spacecraft for NASA astronauts. We had that to look forward to this year. Let's see if that is really happening. Mm. Apparently, the world record for most successful launches in a year is 126, which happened in both 1983 and 1984. But in 2019, it's bound to break the world record with a whopping 173 planned orbital launches. Mm. So 2019 will be a big year for rocket launching. So that will be more than one one launch every three years. Two or three days. Yeah, every two or three days. That'll be good to watch. And your space news. My space news are actually quite related to the topic that we are going to be talking today, which is exoplanets. Oh, yes. But it is something that uh, I really was wow when I saw that for the very first time. But right now it has been detected in many more systems. Let, let, me, let me start to do and explain a bit better what it is. This very powerful radio telescope machine called ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimetric Submillimetric Array in the Chilean Andes, at 5,000 uh, meters over sea level. ALMA has 66 radio telescopes with sizes between 7 and 12 meters in diameter. And it is an excellent machine just to observe the universe in millimetric and submillimetric wavelength. And that is where the dust, the mission, is happening in the cosmos. So one of the main scientific drivers of uh, that machine was looking for protoplanetary systems. So the disks... the beginning of solar systems. The disks that are surrounding very young stars or even protostars and in those protoplanetary disks, it is where the new planets are going to be formed. Mm. In 2014, ALMA released a very wow image of the system HL Tau that was showing the star in the center and a disk. And in the disk, plenty of features, Ooh. black features, showing the hypothetical path of planets that have been formed in that system. That image was showing how powerful ALMA is in order to really look for the formation of the planetary systems and other planets. That's very impressive. Later in 2016, they got new data of TW Hydra, another star, showing the kind of similar features. So what they decided was, okay, let's go to do a program that is called DSHRRP, Disk Substructure at High Angular Resolution Project. 
that have uh, yield very impressive high resolution images of 20 nearby plotted planetary disks. Wow. And these are the images that you are seeing. Oh, that's so pretty. Here, that are very pretty. They but look kind of like galaxies, I have to say. And they're not from, galaxies. From, from the distance, they do. Yeah, because it is, they, they, they have different tilt mm. and they also have different features within the protoplanetary disk. Although the main thing, it is the gaps and sometimes oh, wow. the rings that you see in like those protoplanetary disks. Like really defined planets would be in that sort of area. Yes. So what we should expect, at least following the main ideas that we have about the formation of the planet, it is when you have a nebula star forming region and the gas is condensing, collapsing, mm. the huge majority of the gas is going to form a star. Of course, we also mentioned that in another episode. From a single nebula, you get plenty of stars, but let's go only to focus right now in just one system. Around this star, you get all the reminding gas, just by the laws of physics, going around, getting into a plane, and getting what we call protoplanetary disk. Mm, flattening out like pizza dough. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> very nice. That is mainly gas and dust, mm. and the dust is condensing, forming really small little pieces of rocks, which are called planetesimals. And these are the ones that have been merging together in a very harmonious way, in order that at the end the collisions are not destructive, but forming larger and larger and larger objects. Like planets. And at the end, in a process that we still don't know for how long, sometimes it seems a bit less than a million years, sometimes a bit more, but something like that, then you are getting the formation of the planets through that method. And that is what happened at the beginning of the solar system 4.6 billion years ago. Yeah, not too long ago. These observations are providing excellent data about how the formation of the planets and the solar systems are happening out there. The main result that they're getting only with these 20 objects, it is that the large planets, which are more or less similar in size and composition of between Neptune and Saturn, so not as big as Jupiter, but mm. in that range, form quickly, much faster than the current theory we have will indicate. And they also tend to form in the outer parts of the system. And that is also important because that will start to explain a bit why it is easier to find the rocky planets in the center. In, not in the center, but in the nearby. Ne yeah, close Close to the star. Mm. There are plenty of data still coming, um, plenty of research to do in this process, because there are still many unknowns about exactly how planets are formed and have developed through the cosmic time. Of course, of course. It's not like we can fast forward or rewind time quite easily. We just get snapshots of what's going on. Which is exactly <clears throat> what we have been doing in astronomy all the time, thinking about galaxies at the moment. <laughs> yep, that's so it. We need all this kind of data of different kind of objects to get a statistical sense of evolution. That's right. Well, with that, let's get into our topic for today, which is exoplanets. And I think to start off, I know we've talked about exoplanets here and there, left and right, sometimes. I think we should start off with, what exactly is an exoplanet? What is the definition? An exoplanet, uh, 
I will say that it is just a planet which is not orbiting the sun. Yes, so, very simply, of so, course. So that is the simplest. <laughs> but is there an official title? Is there an official definition? No. Oh. The International Astronomical Union doesn't have a definition of exoplanet. Now that's interesting. So it has a definition of planet. Of course, which is an object orbiting around the sun. Orbited around a star. Oh, okay. Oh. 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 So exoplanets are... Pla- well, obviously they're planets. They're they're obviously. But... Okay. Okay. Huh. Huh. The frontiers are diffused here. Uh, we perhaps have been also mentioning that in other episodes. For example, when we are talking about the frontier between a comet and an asteroid mm. or the sizes between different kinds of asteroids to become a meteoroid. Yep. For here, perhaps we can put the broader picture about what is a star. A star can be very well defined as an object that has sufficient mass to fuse hydrogen into helium. Mm-hmm. And for that, uh, we need to get an object of around 80 times the mass of Jupiter. Oh, there you go. So it is 80. I remember 80. Yes. I got asked once... By one of my good followers, Jen, she asked me for her daughter, oh, is it true that if Jupiter was 80 times more massive, would it be like a star? And I wasn't sure exactly, but there we go. That it is. It is indeed 80 times, uh, needs to be 80 times bigger. So I remember that in some few decades ago, there were still considerations that perhaps only few times few times it not, is an order of yeah, magnitude many. of 10. But Jupiter's definitely not. Not. Definitely it is not. Yeah. It is almost two orders of magnitude mm. there. So it is 80 times two orders of magnitude. Rounding up. But we can define also the brown dwarf stars. Yes, which are not stars in the sense that they can't fuse anything. They No, yes, they can. Oh. So they can't ignite hydrogen, but they can undergo a period of deuterium burning. Now, reminding you what deuterium, deuterium is, is, like heavy... heavy hydrogen. Right. It is when you yeah. have your hydrogen atom... Yeah, with three neutrons, two neutrons. Two neutrons. That's no, right. One neutron. A proton and a neutron... That's right. That's, that is deuterium. That's right. Tr- tritium is the one tritium with two Tritium is with two neutrons. Two, yeah. two neutrons. <laughs> hydrogen, one nucleon. Deuterium, two. 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 Exactly. So that... There are two nucleons yes. in the center of an hydrogen atom. Yep. And as it is heavier, it is easier to fuse. That makes sense. So between 13 and 80 Jupiter masses, okay. you can get that fusion inside an object. Mm. And that is what we are calling a brown dwarf star. So still a significant amount of Jupiter's. 13 times. Yeah. It is an order of magnitude. Yeah. Still some few times. Yeah. So anything that is below 13 Jupiter masses can be defined as a planet. Not not, not exactly below, because then you can define an, uh, a rocky, small asteroid as a planet, and it is not a planet. Of or even a dwarf planet as a planet, and there are different things. So there is a kind of consensus that it is something between the 10% of the mass of the Earth and 13 times the mass of Jupiter. Okay. So that will be... That's a good range. The range where we are moving when we are talking about planets and exoplanets. There you go. So, now that we've sort of defined 
what an exoplanet is. Not that there's a uh, specific definition from the IAU. How about how we find them? And of course, I've already mentioned TESS, which is a new planet hunting telescope out in space. It's taken over from Kepler, who left us a few months ago. Goodbye, Kepler. That is life. Life of everything in the universe. Yes. But of course, we have ground-based telescopes as well. Mm -hmm, Definitely, yes. Well, we've discussed what an exoplanet is. How many have we found? And I know it's a lot, but how much is a lot? A lot, yes, a lot. Today is 17th of December 2018, and I have just checked in a wonderful webpage, which is called the Exoplanets Encyclopedia, mm-hmm. and it is very much updated almost every day. Oh, good. With all the data and the graphics you can get there, amazing, and I will say something else in the moment. But right now, there are 3,913 planets out there. Ooh. These are 2,914 planetary systems. So that suggests that there's at least one. At least one planet. So there is 2,914 stars having at least one planet mm. and 648 stars having at least two planets. Ooh. So these are called multiple planetary systems. Mm-hmm. And I really encourage if you want to know a bit more, just to have a look to this web page, exoplanet.eu. And you can get all the catalog there, what kind of techniques have been used for getting the data, uh, the mass, the radius, the period of the planet, uh, many of the discovery, when it has been updated. And you can also plot and get different kind of analysis by yourself. Even there is an app that you can do a bit of this. That's awesome. And for example, I love to show this graph that uh, we mentioned also in another episode. So that is the year of discovery of the exoplanet and the frequency. And you see uh, some few, 95, 2000, 2005, and then 2010, 2011, the first peak. And then the 2013, the second big peak with 1,000 planets coming for Kepler. And 2016, another peak of around 1,500 planets coming also from Kepler. Lots of planets. Plenty of info there, so just have a look. Um, what it is interesting, and I have actually used this for my lectures, it is the kind of diversity that the exoplanets are having, the properties of the exoplanets mm. are having. Because imagine that we are observing our own solar system. What are the expectations of other planets if we consider what is observed in the solar system? We'd expect that there'd be rocky planets near closer to the sun and mm-hmm. gassy giants planets out to the edge. Yes. That and is. ice giants at the edge too. That is right. And we should not expect, for example, giant planets to be nearby to the stars. No. Nope. No. That was something that it was not expected at all. Also, it seems that exoplanets should be more or less in round orbits, not very elliptical orbits. Yep. You could think about that if you have planets, at least one, there should be a giant planet. I guess so. There was another of the things that you can extrapolate from the observation of our solar system. Well, when we plot with all the statistics that we have now with almost 4,000 planets and see the trends, our solar system is weird. 
We have a very weird solar system. Very weird. Yeah. So there are plenty of planetary systems that they don't have any giant planets. If they have giant planets, sometimes they are very, very, very close to the parent star. Mm-hmm. And these are all very common as well. Yeah, they're also very common. We haven't found ones similar to our solar system, Mm -hmm. which is why ours is the weird one. Yeah, so these are the hot Jupiters usually. Mm. Only some few days um, going around the star. Um, Imagine that. A birthday every couple of days. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) And also, the orbits are found very roundly with very elliptical. Oh. So they're not rounded at all. They have... Very elongated cases of exoplanets that sometimes are very close to the parent star and sometimes are very far away from the parent star. Wow. One of these planets has been theorized like the way of explaining the world of Game of Thrones. <laughs> really? Yeah, really. Am I surprised? Uh, no. No. Well, no. <laughs> actually, you have to include some few other parameters there. If not, it will never get. <laughs> So it has been really, really a shock for planetary scientists to yeah. realize that the solar Wait, system is not—it's not normal. It's not normal. No, not not at all. So now that we know what an exoplanet is, how many are out there? How do we find them? And I know a couple of methods. There's a very common transit method. I know we've talked about these a bit by bits and pieces when talking about Kepler when they left our skies. Um, but yes, we have the transit method where we see a planet move in front of the sun and we see a dip in the star's brightness as it goes around and like periodic dipping. What else do we have? We have other things too. Yes, that is perhaps the most common technique at mm. the moment, particularly thanks to the success of Kepler. Yeah. And also now it is the one that is yeah, yep. using. However, the very first technique that was successful in detecting exoplanets was the Doppler technique. Oh, right. Or, or the radial velocity technique. Yes. Seeing those are, that's best when the planet is, the orbit is slightly not direct onto us, so we can see the light, in quotes there, shifting. Shifting from blue to red. From blue to red. Yeah. yeah so, so exactly. <clears throat> so that is why it is called the radial velocity, because we observe a star that periodically is changing slightly to the blue, then going to the red, then going to the blue, then going to the red. Yeah. When we are talking here about colors, it is just to try to explain that. Yeah. Actually, the, the, not a huge change in color. It's a very, no. very minuscule change it, in color. It not is, even a change in color, really. It, it is just a very, very tiny difference that we can only get that with spectroscopy and with very high resolution spectroscopy yes to say in that way that that movement of shifting the color which is a consequence of the two objects the star and the planet going around the other we have the idea that the planets are moving around the sun and the sun is fixed Mm. But that is not right. That's right. That's exactly, yes. Because <laughs> Jupiter makes the sun wobble as well. Yes, exactly. So every little planet is doing the parent star wobble. It's lightly, mm. but it does. It does. That is physics. It is called physics. That <laughs> is the way we do that. We love physics. But the difference is really, really, really tiny. So right now, the radial velocity method or the Doppler method, it is able to get observations that are 
smaller than one meters per second. Mm. So for detecting some of the exoplanets that we're starting to detect now, we are measuring in a star that might be some few tens of light years away, perhaps even more, as a person walking there. Wow, that's the change. That, that is the change that we are observing in movement of the star because of the small planet affecting for the gravity, mm. the movement of the star. And it is quite unique, I would say. Yes. Of course, that is much easier done in a smaller stars. Mm. Because the smaller the star is, the effect will be larger. Yeah. The is easier it is to move the star. Uh, there it is. That is why at the moment there are some few projects aiming to look for red dwarf stars, which are the most common stars in the galaxy, mm -hmm. for detecting these kind of features. Examples. Barnard star, Proxima Centauri. Of course. The Trappist-1 star that has seven little rocky planets around. Mm. So, so these are the two main methods. The transit method and the radial velocity. And, and I will probably say a bit more about that later. But there are some few more. There are more. There are more. There are more. You can do astrometry. Astrometry is to know exactly well where the star is in the sky. And you should expect that instead of following a direct path, it's going up and down, up and down. Hmm. Because of an unseen object, which is the planet. The, the planet. That was the very first idea, the very first kind of method that was explored. But I guess that would only be good if, well, at a maximal effect, if the planet is going up and down yeah. around it. Exactly, if yeah. it is completely... Directly up and down. Yes, yeah. It was tricky. There were suggestions 30, 40 years ago, I don't remember exactly the date, late in the 20th century, that the Barnard star had a planet mm. that perhaps was detected using the astrometry method. But so far, we haven't found any exoplanet using the astrometry method. No. <laughs> but we have found some exoplanets using the microlensing method. Is that using some sort of gravitational lensing? Exactly. Ah. Gravitational lenses. So it is a star, and there is another star that is passing in front of, of us. Mm -hmm. And you see the peak or the changing of the light because of the effect of the gravity, the microgravity lens. Yep. But... Before or after the peak, there is a secondary peak. Right, from and, the planet. And that is from the planet. And there are some few that have been also found that way. And the last one, which was difficult at the beginning, and now it's starting to be a bit more common, although there are only f very few planets that have been discovered this Let way. Let me guess. Let me guess. Taking a photo. Taking a photo. Oh. The direct <laughs> method, which is just really taking images and a spectra of an exoplanet. Mm. Well, if those are the ways we find planets, let me share with you 20 intriguing exoplanets from experts at NASA. Number one is Kepler-186f. So this is the first rocky planet to be found within the habitable zone, so the region around a host star where the temperature is right for liquid water, the stuff that we sort of need, the Goldilocks zone also. Uh, it's also very close in size to the Earth. And even though we may not find out what's going on on the surface of this planet anytime soon, it's a strong reminder of why new technologies are being developed that will enable scientists to get a closer look at distant worlds. Mm. Isn't that nice? Number two comes in at HD 209458b, or nickname Osiris. This was the first planet to be seen in the transit method. Yeah. 
Mm. And the first planet to have its light directly detected. So you mentioned HD 209458? Yes. Did you say Osiris? Osiris, Osiris, yes. Okay, well, it's a nickname. Nickname, but not the official one, I think. That was the very first exoplanet to be seen transiting its parent star. Mm. That was in 1999, some time ago. And the paper was by Cherbonneau and collaborators in 2000. It is an interesting object because it is only 1.4 times the size of Jupiter, although it is smaller in mass than Jupiter. Mm. (laughs) Just fatter. Yeah, but it only needs three and a half days. Oh, so it's very close. Yeah. It is is very, this a hot Jupiter? It is a hot Jupiter, ah. of course. Yeah, it is more than 1,000 degrees. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> now that's a, that's a real hot Jupiter. But what I like most about this object, it is that it's available to be observed by amateur astronomers. Wow. This exoplanet, it is easily detected using amateur astronomer techniques just taking many images in a consecutive way and doing what we call the photometry of the images. And then even including the errors, you can start finding the deep because of the transiting planet. Wow, that's incredible. Of course, if you get Hubble Space Telescope, you have the plot here. That's much, much better, yes. <laughs> you see very nicely the dim and how that is coming. It is very well confirmed. Mm, very nice, well um, number three is the Kepler-11 system. This was the first compact solar system discovered by Kepler, and it was revealed that a system can be tightly packed. So there's at least five planets within the orbit of Mercury in this one, and it's still stable, mm-hmm. which is pretty incredible. Number four is Kepler-16b. This one's a fun one for all those Star Wars nerds out there. It's a real-life Tatooine. Tatooine. Mm-hmm. I should have been wearing my Tatooine. <laughs> it's the first discovery by Kepler of a planet that orbits two stars, which is known as a circumbinary planet. Imagine being in the surface of that planet. Oh, gosh. With the music by John Williams. Yes. Observing the sunset of the two suns. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm crying. <laughs> Next one, number five, 51 Pegasi B. Dimitri. Uh, sorry, Dimitri. Dimidium. <laughs> that is the official name. Ah, oh, is the official name? The official name. There you yeah. go. This is a giant planet with about half the mass of Jupiter and orbits a star every four days. That is another hot Jupiter. Another hot, jop- hot Jupiter. Very, very. Hot very. Jupiter. Yes, it is nine times closer to its star than Mercury is to the sun in our solar system. Um, but it was the first discovery of an exoplanet around a sun-like star. Mm-hmm. And that was... Using the Doppler technique. Oh. Very nicely. And Seeing the wobble. To, I have the wobble in that image here. But there you go. Isn't that a, such a nice little curve there? Very mm-hmm. sinusoidal. And that is mm. a way of detecting these exoplanets with the radial method. Mm. The next one is Corot 7b. So capital C, little o, capital R, little o, capital T, 7b. It's the first super-Earth identified as a rocky exoplanet. Mm-hmm. Corot was a French satellite looking for oscillations in the stars, what it called asteroseismology, but also for looking extrasolar planets, in particular those large terrestrial-sized exoplanets or super-Earth ah, stars. Ah, that's what that is. 
Next is Kepler-22b, a planet in the habitable zone and possible water world planet, unlike any seen in our solar system. How ne- massive is that? Do you have the... Doesn't say. It doesn't say. It, doesn't say. it is just not a DC. Mm. Uh, next at number eight, Kepler-10b. Kepler's first rocky planet discovery is a scorched Earth-sized world that scientists believe may have lava ocean on its surface. Oh. Mustafa. Mustafa. Yeah. <laughs> is that but what it's called? No, that is uh, the nickname. Ah. Because of the very uh. famous lava planet in Star Wars. Ah. Uh. <laughs> of course it is. Uh, uh, yes, and let me let me say this. <laughs> all the planets that you can imagine in Star Wars, they have been all discovered out there. <laughs> so Star Wars is a documentary? <laughs> it's, it was a visionary. A visionary. We have mentioned Tatooine, mm. now Mustafa. Had you mentioned the Super Earth? I'm not super sure Earth, if it yes. is that one yep. of another one that you come there, but mm. that would be Camino. Ah, okay. It's a Super Earth planet that is the planet of the clones, where oh, the okay. clones are created or right, are born yeah. or whatever. Right, and there's also the the Death Star and also exists, but it's a moon. It is a moon orbiting Saturn. Yes. My mass. It's so cute. I love it. Uh, Kepler-444 system. The oldest known planetary system has five terrestrial-sized planets all in orbital resonance. This weird group showed that solar systems have formed and lived in our galaxy for nearly its entire existence. It is around a very old and low-mass star, Uh, and that is why it is very long-lived. Right, right. Halfway there, next at number 10, 55 Cancery E. 55 Cancery is a toasty world that rushes around its star every 18 hours. 18 hours? Mm-hmm. Imagine it, that. Uh, Every 18 hours you are celebrating the New Year. That's, yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Party all the time. Oh, party. And you know what? It orbits so closely, it's about 25 times closer than Mercury is to the sun. Wow. And I was complaining about the nine times. Mm. 51 Pegasus. Yes. And it's totally locked to the star as well, so... That wouldn't be very fun. So one face of the planet faces the star at all times. That, Not good fun. Yeah, that is what have been thought in many of these planets that are very close to the parent star, including those of the famous Trappist-1 mm. system. That there, At least, if I remember on top of my head, at least two or three of these rocky planets are within the habitable zone. Yeah. Have we defined habitable zone here? We can say that. Well, I mentioned it quickly when we mentioned the habitable zone before. Mm -hmm. It's the zone where liquid water, or no, where water can exist in all three states. Yes, that's right. But it is a bit misleading, the term of habitable zone, because you might think that if you have a planet in the habitable zone, that means that that planet is habitable. It is not. And it is not. No. So I remember some people talking about that should be the water place zone. The yep. place around a star in a solar system, in a planetary system, where you can find liquid water. Yeah. But that is just that. It is mm. not meaning that you're going to it doesn't, find even, even life. It, it could be a hot Jupiter in that habitable zone. I mean, uh, unlikely, but... No, I think by definition it can't. Oh, because okay, no if mind. you have a hot Jupiter, means that it is very close to the, right. to the star. Yeah. But... But that's the point. Like, the, there could be other... It could be a planet that's... Got could be a Titan type planet with or, methane yeah, as it, its it could, atmosphere. Exactly, and if it is uh, tidally locked mm. to the parent star, you will have the problem of one hemisphere just receiving all the radiation, the other being completely in the dark. Yep. And assuming there is an atmosphere there, it is very tricky to get right conditions mm. for getting life or getting something there. Exactly. So it is 
Not that easy. Not easy at all. No. Number 11 is HD 189733b. It's about the size of Jupiter. It's one of the most studied exoplanets and is the first caught passing in front of its parent star in X-rays. So the Chandra X-ray Observatory at the ESA, or sorry, at the European Space Agency, have been able to observe this dip in X-ray intensity. Okay. Which is interesting. Ooh, next one is the PSR B1257 plus 12 system. Okay, I think that I know that one. Mm, It was discovered in 1992 and 1994. Around a pulsar. I think so. Yes, these weird pulsar planets. Yeah, that is the discussion there, talking about what was the very first planet to be discovered outside Mm. of the solar system. Mm. And we now typically say 51 Pegasi B, the medium, but that was the very first exoplanet discovered around a main sequence star. Right, yes. So it is around a kind of a star. Because three years before that discovery, a group of astronomers discovered these objects, mm. this kind of tentative exoplanets around a pulsar, which Ooh. is a dead star. Of course, which means they survived. And many people didn't believe it. Mm. Which is fair. But it is, they're there. They're there. They're there. We still don't know how they survived the supernova explosion, but... They somehow did. They somehow did. Coming in at number 13 is K2-3. The three super-Earths discovered by the K2 mission orbiting a nearby star. Their mass and radius are already known, and soon they may reveal their atmospheric composition. Just to clarify, K2, it is the second part of the Kepler mission. So Mm -hmm. Kepler was first observing during some few years, five, six years, the same field in the constellation of Cygnus, the majority of it, yep. uh, getting plenty of data. But uh, there was a moment in which the spacecraft had a problem with the gyroscopes, and they had to change to a different kind of mission because they couldn't be continuously observing the same area of the sky. Mm-hmm. And they decided just to go to some few random positions around the ecliptic, and that was the K2 mission. Ah, and they have still discovered plenty of exoplanets and other things, including supernova. Coming at number 14 is HR8799. This is the first directly imaged multi-exoplanet system. Oh, I love that one. Mm, it's a beautiful I, I one. It, I have it here. It no. contains at least four massive planets. Yep. Mm-hmm. Looks pretty good. Yeah. No. There's some nice bright hot spots in here. That is not the most recent version of the image of the system because Mm. it has only the three of them, but it is a very nice example of how the technique is now allowing us to get a direct detection of exoplanets. So we are really seeing objects moving around that star that can be only be planets. Of course. They can't be brown stars. They can't be red dwarf stars. They have Mm. to be planets. They have to be planets. And there is even a time-lapse video of this that oh, you that's can cool. see the, the planets moving in some few years. That is really cool. Next up is the Kepler-36 system. The two known planets in this system have most clearly spaced orbits ever confirmed. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So on their closest approach, the neighbouring duo comes within about 1.2 million miles of each other, only five times the Earth-Moon distance. That's very close for yeah. two planets to come by. Could you imagine having a planet come that close... And then observing it through a telescope. <laughs> like if Mars came that close, that would be awesome. It would be very, very interesting indeed. Yeah. Next is HD 114762b. 
Discovered in 1989, three years prior to the pulsar planets and six years prior to 51 Pegasi b, this is the truly the first discovered planet around a sun-like star. However, because the mass is 11 times that of Jupiter, it was found in an orbit of 84 days, it was initially assumed incorrectly to be a brown dwarf. That is the other thing about detecting exoplanets or looking for exoplanets, just analyzing the data needs a lot of time and have to be confirmed and you need different observations and particularly when you are dealing with periods that are several months, a year, mm. then you need at least at least three, four, five times that period of time to get enough data to observe the dims coming regularly or the yeah. dims of the or the effect because of the Doppler effect. It's challenging and difficult. And sometimes even we think Almost sure the planet is there. For example, the recent case of uh, the planet around Barnard star, we are not confirmed at the 100%. Mm. And have been detections in the literature and in media that have been was very famous. We have detected a planet around Alpha Centauri, hey, one of the stars mm. of the Alpha Centauri system, which are two sun-like stars. And it was everywhere around the media from when was that around 2010 2011 mm. like everyone that. lost their minds and and later it was confirmed that there was a mistake in the analysis of the data or there were there were more data coming and they were not able to reproduce that it was just explained by other circumstances mm. of course that was not said in the media no of course <laughs> but don't let the truth get in the way of a good story but it is you know the, the trick is there mm. number 17 we have Kepler 452b this world is the first Earth-sized planet found in the habitable zone of a sun-like star. The planet is 60% larger than the Earth and 5% further away from its parent star than the Earth is from the sun. That to say that it's a kind of uh, rocky planet. It's so like like the Earth, yeah. We are in the phase of detecting no super-Earth, but going into the kind of Earth-like mm. planet. But also, just because it's 60% bigger than the Earth... And in the habitable zone doesn't mean it is habitable. Again, yes. As we said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next at number 18 is HD 80606B. This world has the most eccentric orbit and has, and as one scientist put it, wears its heart on its sleeve with storms, rotation, atmospheric heating and a crazy orbit all plainly visible. That is one of the examples of very elliptical, elongated mm. orbits of exoplanets that we are finding out there. Number 19, we have WASP-47. WASP. What a cool name. WASP is the acronym of Wide Angle Search for Planets, and it is an array of several robotic telescopes, some of them located in the Roque de los Muchachos Observatory in the Canary Islands, Spain, and others located at the South African Astronomical Observatory in South Africa. Part of the compact multi-planet system, it's the only known hot Jupiter with close planetary companions. Oh, so it is not only the hot Jupiter, but also some few other planets around that. Mm. Mm. And finally, number 20. This one's a, quite a hefty name. OGLE, Ogly. 2005, Ogly, BLG 390. Mm -hmm. This one is considered to be the first cold super-Earth. This exoplanet became, began to form a Jupiter-like core of rock and ice, but couldn't grow fast enough in size. Its final mass is five times that of the Earth, with its planet... Nickname is Hoff, after the planet from Star Wars. Another one. Come on, guys. Another one. Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> so I said ugly 
when you started to mention that, because mm. that is an example of an exoplanet discovered using optical gravitational lensing, microlensing, oh. and that is what OGLI stands for. Oh, there you go. Optical gravitational lensing experiment. At least 17 planets have been discovered using this uh, method. There you go. And some of them have been confirmed using the transit method. Ah, fantastic. Which is absolutely great. Was that the number 20? That was number 20. I'm oh, sorry, yes. Was number so 20. So we got, we, got we got 20 most interesting and intriguing exoplanets. I'm going to add another exoplanet. Ooh, uh, because 21. It, well, we have also mentioned some few other more, but I like this because it is former out V. It is around the very bright star former out in mm -hmm. this Austrinus. It's a good, good the star. constellation. Up and, right now. And it has a proper name of Dagon, and it has been observed directly with the Hubble Space Telescope. Ooh. There is a way of uh, putting a special system to block the light of the star, which is called a coronagraph. Mm -hmm. And that is blocking that light, and it allows to see the kind of circunestellar dust and region. It's kind of the protoplanetary disk that we were mentioned before when we were talking about this ALMA news. But there are plenty of debris and a ring and so on. And there is a tiny object which is around, which is quite quite far. It is, I think, it is almost twice or three times the distance between uh, Neptune and the Sun that have been seen moving Ooh. in different years. And that is Forman Hout P. There is even a better image here. It looks like something out of. Lord of the Rings. Well, it seems the Lord of the Rings because, uh, as, as I was trying to mention, you have the chronograph blocking the majority of the light mm. of the star. That is why you have the black patch in the center Yeah. with the position of the star just for... Just in for, the middle, yeah, for, for reference. For, for reference. And then the, the kind of disc, there is a disc and a ring and some debris around there. Mm. And in one part, you see that tiny dot moving around. Uh. Ah, there you go. But considering all the exoplanets that we now know out there, and we have also mentioned that the solar system is weird in the sense that we are finding very different kind of objects there. Mm. And it has been very interesting because right now the majority of the exoplanets we know are on other stars are not the kind of objects that we find in our solar system. Oh. Because their masses are a bit larger than the Earth, that is a super-Earth, mm. or a bit lower than Neptune, than mini-Neptunes. <laughs> Mini-Neptunes, mini that cute. The most common kind of objects that we are finding out there are super-Earth or mini-Neptunes. And we don't have any of those in the solar system. We do not. We are weird. I will say that that will also be one of the main results of the Kepler mission. Mm. And the last thing I would like to mention regarding how we collect the data of exoplanets with the two main different techniques, which are the transit technique and the Doppler technique, it is very important for astronomers to understand the properties of the exoplanets. But we can't get the same results or the same parameters 
using one method or using the other method. For example, with the transit technique, we know the inclination of the planet. Yes. Because we see it. We see it go across. across. So you have to be 90. <laughs> we can literally see it. We can measure the size of the exoplanet and the period. The period, it is easy because it is just the time that it needs. Mm. It needs to, to do it again. And the size, just how fast the dimming is happening. But we can't, we really can't, using the transit technique, to get a clue about the mass of the planet. We don't know the mass of the planet using no. the transit technique. Don't have enough information. For that, we have to use the Doppler technique. The Doppler technique, it is able to provide an estimation of the mass. It is actually not the mass itself because we don't know the inclination. <laughs> yes, but would it be able to tell us the period of the orbit? Yes, it can yeah. be. It can, it can be done that too. But uh, the mass, it is a lower limit to the actual mass of the planet, which mm. is fair enough. The good thing it is that for many cases, we are starting to be able to observe the transit and the Doppler effect. So oh, good. Doing, Double whammy. Yeah, the, both of them to really confirm that it is a planet, it is the best. Of course, we can only do that when... A transit is happening. No, of when course. The inclination is yeah. 90 degrees. We, we need things to be perfect. But it is good because for that, we are measuring at the same time masses and densities and all the parameters. So it is the best at the moment. Mm. If you are able to get exoplanets with both estimations of the transit technique and the radial velocity, you are really nicely parametrizing all the main properties of that planet. And we are trying to do that. That is why there is all that synergy between the large satellite missions like TESS mm. now and radial velocity projects on Earth using four meter telescopes, even, sometimes even a smaller telescope, sometimes larger telescopes, just to try to characterize the velocity shift or the Doppler shift because of the pull between the exoplanet and the star and measuring that. Well, I think that pretty much covers all of exoplanets, I think, for we've looked at what's the definition, if there is one, we've looked at how many there are, almost 4,000, surely there'll be more than 4,000 now by the time this episode comes out. Yeah, probably. 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 Um, close. We're being mm, close. It will be very close. I don't think it will get to the 4,000 unless there is a big data release or something in just mm. three in three weeks i will expect perhaps between five and twenty yeah fair enough more than the three thousand nine hundred thirteen planets that i'm I gonna round to. up to four thousand anyway okay well. <laughs> four thousand well almost four thousand planets exoplanets we've discussed how we find them we've had a look at a few interesting exoplanets i think we're good yeah, We've we covered good. all bases, but now... Uh, more? <laughs> but now, we have some feedback. Feedback, great. A question and actual feedback, feedback too. So from Peter on Twitter, I have a question. The distribution of distant KBOs, or Kuiper Belt objects, may suggest a planet 9. Has anyone analysed the orbits of extremely long period comets similarly to see if they suggest the same? Or are they just completely random and only suggest the Oort cloud? I don't think that anyone has really 
going into details of analyzing all the orbits mm. of the long period comet. Because in because general, they're just random, aren't they? They are very random and yeah. they have very, very long elongated orbits. So it is very difficult really to establish well mm. the orbit and where they're going to be in a 20,000, 100,000 years in the past and in the future. Mm. The main thing it is that they are coming randomly from all directions in the sky. And that is the observational evidence that the Earth cloud, which is a kind of repository of comets surrounding the solar system, is there. And what is the feedback? The feedback is, the show is excellent and the jokes are terrible. Carry on. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. just to... Uh, to our, <laughs> our jokes are really bad. They, I know. they are. And I'm Particularly Kirsten. Kirsten jokes oh, are yes. really bad. And I'm going to finish off with a kicker as well with our what's up. So in our WhatsApp section, I want to suggest Sirius as a perfect WhatsApp object because everyone can see it. It's a very nice, bright star. In fact, it is the brightest star in the night sky. So why is it called Sirius? Because it's seriously bright. <laughs> I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, Peter. I will never stop my terrible jokes. I will indeed carry please, on. Please carry on. <laughs> Carry on, that is part of yourself. It is, yes. it is. Sirius, it is a very nice target, and as you said, no one is going to miss it. No one's going to miss Hopefully. it. It is wonderful. Even without a telescope, it is beautiful just to stargaze at. Yeah. I mean, it is brilliant. I really like and enjoy seeing Sirius rising, mm. because if it is so bright, when it is... Uh, crossing the different layers of the atmosphere, you have very random colors. Yes, so it's very rainbowy. Yeah, you have sometimes the red, the blue, the green coming from there, from, from Sirius. It's a wonderful, wonderful little star. If you can see Sirius, you can also use Orion's belt to guide <laughs> you to Sirius. That's true. Ha, here's another one. If you can't see Sirius, it's Sirius. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good, another good one. Um, no, I need to be stopped. <laughs> just a little bit of extra information. It is one of the closest stars to the sun. It is only about eight light years away. 8.6 light 6? years away. Um, it has 25 times the luminosity of the sun. It is a relatively bright star. Temperature of almost 10,000 degrees and an age of around 240 million years. Mm -hmm. And it was discovered that it is not a single star, but no. it has a little white dwarf star, the pup. Oh, <laughs> it is called that's the pup. cute. Around it, it is um, around a solar mass white dwarf star with an age of 230 million years, something like that. But it is very, very close to... Serious. So mm. that is why it is very difficult to see. Mm. And on top of that, recently it was in the last perhaps 20 years. I've been very close because of elliptical orbit. So right now you need a kind of uh, at least an 11, perhaps even a 14 inches telescope to really see the white dwarf star wow. and separate it that from Sirius. Also the problem that Sirius is really, 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 really bright. Really bright. And not uh, that much the white dwarf star. Mm. The last thing I would like to say is that with Betelgeuse uh, and Procyon, Sirius is the third vertex of what is called the Winter Triangle. Which would be the Summer Triangle in Australia. <laughs> exactly, which would be the Southern Triangle for the Southern Hemisphere. Yep. So 
there you go. You can try also to find these two brightest stars, Betelgeuse in uh, Orion, mm -hmm. the Orion constellation, and Procyon in... Canis Minor? Canis Minor. That's it, yep. Sirius is in Canis Major. Yep. And Procyon it is in Canis Minor. And the Milky Way it is between both of them. Yes. The main plane of the Milky Way. So that is uh, the only story about one star that was able to cross the river and the other couldn't. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. I remember that story now. Aw, cute. Well, that's the finish to our first episode of 2019. Happy Yuppie. birthday to us for tomorrow. Yay! Woo. So thank you very much for listening and we are eager to get your feedback and your questions for the future. I think that you already know how to find us, but just in case, Christine... On Twitter and at Facebook at The Skyantists. Send us your questions and we will answer them. Okay, well, thank you very much for being there. Thank you. We'll see you in two weeks. See you. Bye. Bye-bye.